Hi, you're listening to GCSE Revision with Jazz and it's me, Jazz. Today we're going to be looking at Act 2, Scene 3, which is quite a long scene, which is why we're only going to be focusing on it today. And make sure you have everything ready so you can get start, uh, you can start annotating and yeah. Okay, Act 2, Scene 3 is quite a long scene, I would say. In my script, it is about three, four, five, six pages long, which is a long scene. Um, now, if you've watched my other episodes, I would recommend you to get your script, some uh, different coloured highlighters and a pen. And as I go through, you can annotate with me. Normally, I read out the scene in sections and then we go and annotate it together. Now, the reason I think these episodes are quite good is because you can get um, different interpretations and different annotations than what your teacher has maybe given you or what you've thought of. Um, and it's a good way to make sure that you um, have the best possible notes for later on. So, we're going to start with Act 2, Scene 3 today, and I'm going to read the first section now. Enter a porter knocking within who is obviously drunk. Porter. Here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old old turning the key. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? I the name of Beelzebub. Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Come in time, have napkins enough about you. Here, you'll sweat for it. Knock, 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 who's there? In the other devil's name, Faith hears a equivocator that could swear in both the scales against their scale, who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. Oh, come in, equivocator. Knock, 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 who's there? Faith. Here's an English tailor come hither for stealing out of a French hose. Come in, tailor. Here you may roast your geese. Knock, knock, knock. Never at quiet. What are you? But this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil porter it no further. I have thought to have let in some of other, some of all professions that go the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire. Anon. Anon, I pray you, remember the porter opens the gate. So, this section is when the porter talks. Now, first thing I want to comment on is porter means the clown. He is the clown of the play and he provides comic relief from the tension that has been going around, uh, in the going on in the play so far. If you can remember, the scene just before this is very uh tense as Macbeth has just committed the crime Lady Macbeth has um returned the daggers to the guards sleeping place because they are so drunk that they have passed out and Macduff is all the while knocking which heightens the tension because Macduff is seconds away from catching them red-handed literally 
so he provides some comic relief from the tension and he also has a message that that is quite relevant to Macbeth's situation in the play so far. So the first thing the porter says is, here's a knocking indeed, which basically means there's a lot of knocking. Um, and this, what would I say for this is, it, there's a continuation of the knocking from the previous scene, and it's symbolic of how fate would eventually catch up to Macbeth. Then the porter says, if a man were porter of hell gate, which means if a man were in charge of opening the gates to hell, so this is dramatic irony as Macbeth's castle is now being shown as a hellish place because he has killed the king and he's saying that he is the porter of hell. The porter is saying he is the um, person in, cha in charge of hell. Uh, all the while, while this scene is going on, uh, there's knocking and again symbolic of Macbeth's fate. Then he says... A lot of things that give us connotations to the devil or hell, for example, Beelzebub, which is just the, uh, the name, another name of um, the devil. You have the devil's name, here you'll sweat for it, and roast your goose, which creates a semantic field of hell, which is ironic as it links to Macbeth's, Macbeth's actions. He is damned, he could not say amen, so you can link that to there. Then also, he lists professions, uh, a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty, which means a farmer who killed himself because grain was cheap. Uh, then you have an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against either scale, which means a two-faced con man who lied under oath, and also an English tailor come hither for stealing out of a French hose, which means an English tailor who liked to skimp on the fabric for people's clothes, which basically means only use a very limited amount of clothing and you would use to like carve it back. So these professions are metaphors for the sins that he's committed so far in the play and things he's going to commit. Um, and also when it says English tailor come hither for stealing out a French hose, it links back to when Macbeth said borrowed robes. Um, his title is stolen, like how he becomes king, that is stolen. Um, and you know, you see the motifs of motif of clothes quite a lot in Macbeth. So you could talk about how it's like he he's stolen an outfit of a king because he killed the king. He didn't uh, get to be king fairly and in the right way. Uh, and it could also be that he, he uh, the role of Cordor, uh, he, fe <coughs> he felt that he had stolen that. Like, it's not his title. Then we have... Um, never at quiet when he's saying never a moment of peace because of the knocking so it suggests that Hell's Gate or Macbeth's castle um, is really busy and he also says that this place is too cold for hell referring to Macbeth's castle um, so he's implying that it's even worse than hell and then he says remember the porter 
Now, this could show that what the porter is saying is important. It's not something you should just gloss over. He's also warning the audience that they could end up like Macbeth. So, essentially, he's warning the audience that treason would lead to inescapable consequences. Um, and then the next section begins, so I'm going to read out this bit. Enter Macduff and Lennox. Macduff. Was it so late, friend? Er, uh, you went to bed that you did lie so late. Porter. Faith, sir, we were carousing till the second cock. And drink, sir, is a great provoker of three things. Macduff. What three things does drink especially provoke? Marry, sir, nose painting, sleep and urine. Lechery, sir, it provokes and unprovokes. It provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. Therefore, much drink may be said to be an equivocator with lechery. It makes him and it mars him, it sets him on and it takes him off. It persuades him and disheartens him, makes him stand to and not stand to. In conclusion, equivocates him in a sleep and giving him the lie leaves him. Macduff. I believe drink gave thee the lie last night. Porter. That it did, sir. I, the very throat on me, but I requited him for his lie, and I think, being too strong for him, though he took up my leg sometimes, yet I made a shift to cast to him. Master. Is thy master... No, Macduff. Is thy master stirring? Enter Macbeth. Our knocking has awakened him. Here he comes. Okay, we're going to stop it there. So, this is um, a cop. This is where the porter is referenced as the comic relief, as this is the actual comedy bit. Now, he says stuff like, "Drink, sir, is a great provoker of three things: provokes the desire, but takes away the performance; stand to and not stand to." These are basically just sexual innuendos, just talking about um, sexual scenarios. Um, and also when he talks about peeing, makes you urinate, uh, marry sir, nose painting, sleep and urine, um, at the time, sometimes the porter, when he would play the role of the porter, would actually pee on stage, so that would be kind of the comic relief, um, with all this, it would help calm down the audience a bit, and also, when he says things like, Great provoker of three, um, equivocator, lechery, and provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance, stand to or not stand to. These are all um, things to do with men, I would say. Um, they're all masculine things, but they, the, but the drink, the alcohol, turns it into a negative thing. This one is kind of weird one to teach. Uh, especially because it's, you can't really say much about this scene. It's just basically a way to give relief to the audience by comedy. Then Macbeth enters and this begins a tense exchange between Macbeth and Macduff. Now I want to actually talk about the porter. So, the porter has been intoxicated. He has overslept and is now hung over uh, much like how Macbeth had seemed to his wife when he was like 
was a hope drunk when you dressed in, dressed yourself. So you could link that to there. And Shakespeare's comparison of the two men is really similar, actually. The descriptions of Macbeth and the actions of the porter are linked. The two men both are on the brink of hell. Macbeth for his acts of regicide and the porter uh, in his fantasies as he works the gates of hell. Now, let's talk about alcohol in Macbeth. In Macbeth, however, this is quite different. There are lighter moments in the play where alcohol must be present, must be present, although it may not be referenced explicitly. Occasions like, um, if you think about it, the celebration, Macbeth celebration feast. I ha- I can feel my voice going weird, so let me just. Okay, so uh, occasions such as Macbeth's celebration feast uh, would be quite dull without it. So it is represented positively at some points in the play. Uh, but when alcohol is referred directly, it's in a negative sense. Um, and Shakespeare explores its uh, dark side effects and the influence it can hold on people. Now, Shakespeare subtly makes references to society's criticisms of excessive drinking in Act 2, Scene 2, so last scene. Um, So Lady Macbeth drinks just enough alcohol to make her bold in comparison to the guards who have consumed a lot of alcohol. And it is alcohol and their decision to drink heavily that eventually leads them to their deaths. I'm talking about the guards' deaths um, because they chose to be reckless. Um, alcohol can also be linked to Shakespeare's character's failures and the shame that follows the such failures. Uh, if we go back to the Duncan's guards, they drink and so fail in their duty to protect the king. Um, and Macbeth is also deemed a failure in the eyes of his wife during his uh, change of heart when he refuses to press ahead with their plans. He says, uh, we shall proceed no longer in this bloody business. And Lady Macbeth hisses back, was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? So by alluding to her husband's potential use of alcohol and linking it to his moral U-turn, the link between masculinity and alcohol is one the porter himself consolidates. So how I talked about when he says, provokes the desire but takes away the performance, stand to and not stand to. Um, they link masculinity and alcohol in a negative way, such as how Lady Macbeth has been doing. Okay, now let's go to the next section. So this is in response to when Macbeth says, uh, when Macbeth comes into the room. Lennox. Good morning, noble sir. Macbeth. Good morrow both. Macduff. Is the king stirring, worthy thane? Macbeth. Not yet. Macduff. He did command me to call timely on him. I've almost slipped the hour. Macbeth. I'll bring you to him. Macbeth. Oh, I keep saying Macbeth, Macbeth, and Macduff, Macduff. Okay, I'm just gonna... How could I... Give me a second. Okay, this might make you laugh, but I'm gonna do a deep voice for Macduff and a Macbeth voice, just my normal voice. It's gonna sound terrible, just ignore me. Good morrow, both. Is the king stirring worthy thane? Not yet. He did command me to call timely on him. I have almost slipped the hour. <laughs> Sorry, it's making me laugh. I'll bring you to him. I know this is a joyful trouble for you, but yet tis one. The labour we delight in physics pain. This is the door. I'll make so bold to call 
for Tismar Limited Service. Lennox. Goes the king hence today? He does. He did appoint, so. Lennox. The night has been unruly. Where we lay our chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard I the air. Strange screams of death and prophesying with ain't accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events. New hatched to the woeful chime, the obscure bird clamoured the lifelong night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. Macbeth. Twas a rough night. Lennox. My young remembrance cannot parallel a fellow to it. Macduff. Oh, horror, horror, horror. Tongue nor heart can, cannot conceive nor name thee. What's the matter? And that's said by both Macbeth and Lennox. So I'm going to talk about this page here. So Macbeth said, says, good morrow both. Uh, he's using mostly monosyllabic, mostly monosyllabic, words for example good morrow both not yet i'll bring you to him it's very robotic if you want to say that uh, it's very dull he's not really engaging as much in the conversation and this could be reflective of macbeth's guilt and tension then macduff, oh, macduff says i have almost slipped the hour which means i've almost missed the time he requested uh it shows that he takes his responsibility uh, and loyalty to the king very seriously and he's suggesting that he's late and then Macbeth says I'll bring you to him his comments are polite and brief they're representative of the fear Macbeth feels the less he says the less likely he get he's get um the less likely he is to get caught then Macbeth says joyful trouble I know this is a joyful trouble to you which means I know the burden of hosting him is both an honor and a trouble so this is the oxymoron. It shows that the trouble is about to start, but he is, but he, um, he's joyful to do his duty. So he does acknowledge that it's sometimes not the best thing to do, but he takes, like I said, he takes his responsibility to the king very seriously. And Macduff says, um, tis my limited service when he's talking about waking up the king, which means because that's my job. So again, uh, there's a modesty about Macduff. He's not showing off at all. Then, once Macduff is exiting and we all know what's going to happen, he's going to find the king dead, Lennox and Macbeth have a conversation. Now, I think Lennox is quite an underrated character in Macbeth. He is um, actually... You can get a lot of quotes from him because he... In this scene and another scene where he talks to an old man about the the night let's just say that the night yeah and how the earth how the na Ooh, i can't talk today i'm so sorry how nature has been responding to the death of duncan he talks a lot about that and you can really pick out those quotes to show the way that his uh, Macbeth's actions have impacted not just him but everybody so he says the night has been unruly so again if you know Shakespeare pays attention to weather a lot he you know he uses it to create um, a certain atmosphere right like right in the beginning of the play it starts with thunder and lightning you know he uses that kind of language he uses the weather to um, create a certain atmosphere like I said then he says chimneys were blown down 
this shows uh basically the wind was so strong that chimneys literally oh never mind it means the wind blew down through the chimneys so this is pathetic fallacy reflecting on the evil deeds macbeth had did had, had did has done then he says strange screams of death it's suggestive of the fact that the balance of nature and natural order itself have been reversed because the, the king is killed so supernatural things are coming uh, are happening macbeth's crimes have literally broke nature then Lennox says way for time it's irony because that's exactly what happens in Macbeth's rule so then he says the obscure bird clamoured the livelong night uh, the obscure bird in this sentence is an owl and this is a bird which is associated with darkness and prophecy linking the omen and the events of the night to the witch's actions then he says was feverous and did shake which is uh talking about the earth and this again shows that natural order is not calm and it is chaos then macbeth really downplays the appalling weather and he was like yep twas a rough night he deliberately downplays the appalling weather because he acknowledges that in the impact of his actions uh, whilst trying to hide the truth from Lennox. Then Macduff enters again. He's clearly upset. He says, oh, horror, horror, horror. He, he repeats the phrase horror, which shows that he is shocked and, you know, he's baffled. And also it shows his emotional pain. It emphasises this unimaginable sight. Now, somewhere you can get into quite detail is the number three. He repeats horror three times, and the number three is linked to riches and the supernatural. And the way you can back this up is there are three witches in the play. They give three predictions each to um, Banquo and Macbeth, and they have three key scenes, the witches, in the play. So, you know, you could link that to the witches if you really wanted to. And then he says, tongue no heart, tongue nor heart can conceive nor name three, which just emphasises the distress he's in from this uh, news. Right, so now I'm going to read the next bit of Act 3. Jesus, I didn't actually realise how long Act 3 is. Okay, so, Macduff. Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. Most sacrilegious murder hath broke ope. The Lord's anointed temple and stole thence the life o' oh, the building. Macbeth. What is to you say? The life? Lennox. Mean you his majesty? Macbeth. Approach the chamber and destroy your sight with a new gorgon. Do not bid me speak. See and then speak yourselves. Exit Macbeth and Lennox. Awake, awake, ring the alarm bell, murder and treason, Banquo and Donalbane, Malcolm, awake, shake off this drowning sleep, death's counterfeit, and look on death itself, up, up, and see the great doom's image, Malcolm, Banquo, as for your graves, rise up and walk like sprites to countenance this horror, ring the bell, bell rings, enter Lady Macbeth, Lady Macbeth. What's the business that such a hideous trumpet calls to parley? The sleepers of the house. Speak, speak. Macduff. 
Oh, gentle lady, tis not for you and... Mm? No. Tis not for you to hear what I can speak. The repetition in a woman's ear would murder as it fell. Oh, Banquo, Banquo, our royal master's murdered. Lady Macbeth. Woe, alas, what in our house? I don't know why I said that so sarcastically. Banquo. Too cruel anywhere. Dear Duff, I prithee contradict thyself and say it not so. Enter Macbeth, Lennox, and Ross. Macbeth, had I but died an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed time. For from this instant there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys. Renown and grace is dead. The wine of life is drawn, and the mere lease is left this vault to brag of. Enter Malcolm and Donalbane. Malcolm and Donalbane are... Um, Duncan's son, just to clarify. So, when Macduff comes back to, from the crime scene, we could call it, he says it's the most sacrilegious murder. So, this shows that the chain of being uh, represents that. The chain of being basically means that the king is uh, just next to God on earth and it's the most terrible thing anyone can do and regicide is essentially a crime against god as the king was chosen was thought to be chosen by god um and is the closest thing to god on earth and you you could call them the spokesperson of god on the earth um then he says broke ope the lord's anointed temple which means a murderer has broken to god's temple and stolen the life out of it now this quote compares Duncan's body as a actual religious sacred building which has been destroyed and shows how unholy Duncan's murder was. Then Macduff says, Approach this chamber and destroy your sight with a new gorgon, which means go into the bedroom and see for yourself what's in there will make you freeze with horror. Now, Duncan's body is like a gorgon and Medusa from Roman mythology is a gorgon because if you look at her she will turn you into stone so it's kind of showing so Macduff is kind of trying to say that if you look at Duncan's corpse you would be changed forever and it's a sight so horrific that it will metaphorically turn those who look on it to stone then when Macbeth and Lennox leave to go see the body and Macbeth's meant to be act shocked, uh, he says, awake, awake to everybody. It's a desperate cry uh, and it's the juxtaposition of being awake and death because um, Duncan has just died and he's trying to awake, wake everyone up. There is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine exclamation marks in that. No, that's not nine. There's eight exclamation marks in that little section there when he's trying to awake everyone. Can just It just reflects the shock he's in. Then he says, shake off this drowning sleep, uh, death's counterfeit. Um, which basically is saying, shake off sleep, which looks like death, and look at death itself. So he's acknowledging that Duncan is actually dead and not just sleeping. And then walk like sprites is a reference to Judgment Day, 
So, and also he says, such a hideous trumpet caused to parlay the sleepers of the house. Lady Macbeth says that. It's a reference to Judgment Day, which is the end of the world, which could ref uh, which could show that the world has ended because Duncan has died in such a hideous way as well. Um, also, it's ironic that Lady Macbeth enters when the bell rings. She's associated with bells ringing quite a lot. So it's ironic as it's almost like she's been summoned. Um... Macduff has a lot of O, O gentle lady, O Banquo. Like I said before, I think I've said this before, uh, in Shakespeare, when there's just a single O, it's meant to show intense emotion and pain. So again, that reflects the emotions that Macduff is going through. And Lady Macbeth is like, what, in our house? Which shows she's more concerned about her household and not really the king. She's like, in my house, not Duncan. Somebody killed Duncan? No, it's about their house. Um, and then Banquo replies to this, too cruel anywhere. So he shows he's truly upset and it's a bit suspicious as well. And he calls Macduff Dear Duff, suggests that they have a close relationship. It's not just Macduff, it's Duff. Then Macduff, Macbeth gets really uh, poetic and says, I have lived a blessed time for from this instant there's nothing serious in mortality, all is but toys, which means if I had only died an hour before this event, I could say I'd lived a blessed life, because from this moment on there is nothing worth living for. So he's talking when he says I'd lived a blessed time, could be it's past tense and it could show that he has strayed away from his righteous path. And he's being very hyperbolic here, and when he says the wine of life is drawn and the mere lease is left, this vulture bag of it could be an expression of his guilt and then enter M Malcolm and Donalbane and now I'm going to read that bit what is amiss Donalbane says that sorry Macbeth you are and do not note the spring the head the fountain of your blood is stopped the very source of it is stopped Macduff your royal father's murdered Malcolm oh by whom Lennox, those of his chamber, as it seemed, had done it. Their hands and faces were all badged with blood. So were their daggers, which unwiped we found upon their pillows. They stared and were distracted. No man's life was to be trusted with them. Macbeth, oh yes, I do repent me of my fury, that I did kill them. Macduff, wherefore, wherefore did you so? Macbeth, he can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in the moment. No man. The expedition of my violent love outrun the pause of reason. Here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood and his gash stabs looked like a breach in nature for ruin's wasteful entrance. There the murderers steeped in the colours of their trade, their daggers unmannerly breached with gore. Who could refrain that had a heart to love and in that heart courage to make loves known? Lady Macbeth, help me hence ho, Macduff, look to the lady, Malcolm aside to Donalbane, why do we hold our tongues, that most may claim this argument for ours, Donalbane aside to Malcolm, what should be spoken here, where our fate, hide in an auger hole, may rush and seize us, let's away, our tears are not yet brewed, Malcolm aside to Donalbane, nor our strong sorrow upon the foot of motion, Banquo looked to the lady, Exit Lady Macbeth attended. And we and when we have our naked 
frailties hid that suffer in exposure let us meet and question this most bloody piece of work to know it further fears and scruples shake us in the great hand of god i stand and thence against the indivulged pretence i fight of treasonous malice macduff and so do i all so all macbeth let's briefly put on manly readiness and meet i the howl together all well contended exit all but malcolm and dolabane what will you do let's not consort with them to show an unfelt sorrow in an office which the false man does, does easy i'll to england dolabane to ireland i our separated fortune shall keep us both the safer where we are near these daggers in men's smiles the near in blood the nearer bloody malcolm this murderous shaft that's shot hath not yet lighted and our safest way is to avoid the aim therefore to horse and let us not be dainty of leaving of leave-taking but shift away there's warrant in the, that theft which steals itself when there's no mercy left okay so when Dolabane says what is wrong, what is amiss, Macbeth replies in really elaborate language. He goes, you are and do not, you, and do not know it. The spring, the head, the fountain of your blood is stopped. The very source of it has stopped. This is a planned response and Shakespeare uses blood metaphor, sorry, <laughs> sorry shakespeare uses blood metaphorically to suggest that it's life-giving the fountain of your blood um it shows kind of duncan's life flooded scotland with good um and prosperity and macbeth is stopping this flow um and has stopped the good goodness replacing it with evil then macduff says your royal father's murdered right after she's just straight forward you know he's not going so elaborate. Lennox then says uh, their face and hands were all badged with blood. Shows the motif of blood. He's talking about the guards there. And he says, so were their daggers, which unwiped we found. So could show that it's not the end of bloodshed. Uh, and it's disrespect. That, that was found disrespectful at the time. To not wipe the blood from your dagger or your sword. After you've killed... Macbeth says, oh, yet I do repent me of my fury that I did kill him, kill them. He doesn't stop to really think about what he's saying. Um, and it's just a heat of the moment thing. Macduff says, where foul did you? So why did you do that? He's questioning him, shows he's also suspicious. He's a bit sceptical. Macbeth says, who can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in a moment? Um, it's the effect that ambition has has did to him he feels quite intense emotions at the same time maybe or it's just an excuse then it says his silver skin laced with his golden blood he's using godlike language religious and this is ironic as this is how he should feel about duncan but he's the one who hurt him and also he compares duncan to precious metals like silver skin um Maybe it's Macbeth trying to avoid suspicion or, or it's a realisation of the magnitude of what he's actually done. He's destroyed the most precious thing in Scotland. And also it says laced, which gives an image of a fragile and delicate person, which is quite opposite to the general concept of kingship, which is thought to be strong and powerful. 
Um, he, uh, Macduff or Macbeth also says, and his gashed stabs, gashed stabs, their sibilance, their sibilance is hard and threatening. Um, then Macduff also says, who could refrain that had a heart to love and in that heart courage to make love known, which means who could have restrained himself who loved Duncan and had the courage to act on it. It's his love of Duncan versus the love of Lady Macbeth that actually causes his internal conflict in the first place. He wants to be to kill Mac, uh, Duncan. He wants to be a loyal, perfect soldier, but also he wants to show his wife that he's not a coward and he's not weak. And that, yes, he is ambitious and he does want to be something more than just a soldier. Then the Lady Macbeth says, help me hence ho. This could be her trying to be distracted. Uh, distract, trying to distract everybody else from the fact that he's just, he's almost about to um, expose himself of what he's done, or she's just overwhelmed. She is either behaving like a typical fragile woman, or she's becoming a manipulator and manipulating everyone so that they don't find out the truth. Um, and I would actually think it's a manipulator because that kind of sorts uh, and it kind of fits her character throughout the play. Malcolm then says, aside to Donald Brain, his brother, why do we hold our tongues? He is, knows um, at some point someone in this room has killed their father uh, and they know it's not the guards. And he's like, why are we not talking about it? And why are we just acting like we don't know anything? Uh, Donald Bain says to Malcolm, hid in an auger hole may rush and seize us, which means let's get out of there. We haven't even... Mm, no. I'm trying to find what it means. Yeah, it means like, let's get out of here. So it's uh, immediately his fear that they'll be next, they'll be killed next, so they run away. And then Banquo um, puts out sets of orders. He says, let us meet, uh, question this most bloody piece of work to know it further. Um, I fight of treason malice, treasonous malice, uh, and when we have our naked frailties hid. So he's basically saying, when we're properly dressed for the cold, uh, let's meet and discuss this bloody crime. Uh, I'm, pu I'm putting myself in God's hands and fights against a secret plot. He is taking charge with a very clear plan of what to do. Uh, Macbeth then says, let's briefly put on manly readiness, which means let's get dressed quickly. Again, you can link this to the motif of clothing, uh, status. Like I said, a lot of um, the motif of clothing comes up, clothing comes up quite a lot. So... Make sure you just mark that out where it's uh, a motif of clothing. Malcolm says, um, when everyone leaves, which the false man does easy. So it's easy for a liar to pretend to feel sorrow when he actually feels more. He Malcolm would be an intelligent ruler because he's aware of man, man's deception. Unlike um, Duncan, in the first act, he says... Give me a second. Oh, why can't I find it? Something about gentlemen. Something about gentlemen. Uh, oh, yeah, he was a gentleman who I placed an absolute trust. Now, I'm not sure if that's right because I've just thought that out of my brain. If it's not, don't worry. But basically, you could link that back to that and say... Um, he's he's aware of man's deception, unlike Duncan in the beginning of the play, uh, when referencing the Thane of Cordor. 
Then Donald Bain says, our separated fortune shall keep us both safer. So they're using planning, they're strategically planning, and even he is aware of deception. Uh, and you can link that into the theme of appearance versus reality when he says there's daggers in men's smiles. Again, daggers is a symbol of thievery and swords is um, honour and valour. So um, they recognise that not everyone is who they say they are. And that concludes Act 2, Scene 3. It was a long one just to uh, summarise. Basically, in this scene, we have um, the knocking continued um and we get the porter who provides comedic relief but also he also talks about the deeds that Macbeth has we talked about alcohol in the play then we talked about when Macduff enters and has a little uh comical conversation with the porter then Lennox and Macbeth arrive and uh the porter leaves and they talk about the king just for a little bit and how they have to wake him up so Macduff wakes him up and then um while Macduff is going to wake him up. Um, Macbeth and Lennox have a conversation. Well, Lennox has a conversation, and Macduff, Macbeth is like, "Yes, mm, mm. Um, about how the night was really unruly. Night has been unruly, um, and chimneys were blown down. And this just shows how much um, the death of Duncan has affected nature." Then Macduff comes back says oh horror 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 um, and talks about how the Duncan has died um, murdered and then Macbeth and Lennox run off to see the king uh, and Macbeth has to pretend that he's really sad and meanwhile um, Macduff tries to awake everybody then again they talk about how bad that is and uh, Macbeth almost um, reveals himself and says oh yes I do repent me of my fury that I did kill him and then Lady Macbeth pretends to faint or something like that to um distract everyone and then they say they will discuss it later and then Malcolm and Donald Bain make a plan to run away to um Ireland uh Ireland and England and that ends the scene three so a lot happens um and yeah basically that's all that happens well done for sticking it three um, tomorrow, not tomorrow, uh, next episode will be Act 2, Scene 4, and Act 3, Scene 1. Scene 1 is also a very long one. No, actually, no, it's, a, it's only three pages. Yeah, so I'll be doing those two acts um, in the near future. So thank you for watching. Thanks for listening to GCSE Revision with Jazz by me, Jazz, and I hope it helped you in any way, shape or form. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like me to cover or uh, anything you need help with, feel free to email me, um, and my email is in the description, or you could just message me on whatever podcast directory you're listening to. I've never said directory before. You should be proud of me. Um, and yeah. Uh, I will be coming out with a new Macbeth video uh, and a how to revise English Lit video soon. So make sure you look out for that one. Have a good day wherever you are in the world and bye.